Welcome everyone to Young Turks Talk. On today's episode, we would be dissecting the Ukrainian crisis with Priyankar Kandapa, who is currently pursuing his bachelor's degree in history and politics from one of the most prestigious universities in the world, University of Oxford. Welcome Priyankar. Thank you very much for having me. You have been actively following the events that have been occurring and have been updating every single piece of information as it comes out on your Instagram handle. I have two questions for you. Why are you doing this and have you gotten any sleep lately? <laughs> so far as the sleep is concerned, I've been able to get some sleep um uh because time zones are luckily coinciding. Um now in terms of why I'm doing this, um there are two reasons why I'm doing this. The first is because yes, I'm passionate about this. I think that we need to know what's going on and because in war you're always going to have a lot of confusion. I think it's important to get the best information out to the public. The second reason is because I want to the reason it's via story actually is very specific it's because I can then find out the time at which I make every story so that I can trace together events as they happen and possibly write about it in the future and so that we could make because knowing what happens when is very important in wars. Wow, that's really cool and that's a very unique way of actually going about things. Anyways, let's start the discussion for today. Uh could you firstly give us a historical background and a quick understanding of how did these two countries get themselves in the situation that they currently find themselves in right uh, that's a very good question basically the thing is ukraine is a very confusing country but uh, but the long story short the problem with ukraine is it's divided in two basically uh in the east of ukraine you've got lots of russian speakers and in the west of ukraine you have lots of ukrainian speakers Now Ukraine hasn't been an independent country for a very long time until it gained its independence in um the after after the Cold War ended and the Soviet Union uh, and Russia was forced to give up Ukraine after a referendum. However the problem is the Russian speakers in the east and the Ukrainian speakers in the west there's been a lot of division between them and from the Russians perspective they want to try and reestablish a greater Russia. in other words russia with all the russian speakers and restore russia's uh, greatness so that was what putin was talking about in the very lengthy speech that he gave now a second reason is a bit more complicated and has to do with the geopolitics of the area now ukraine is not a very successful country to be honest with you it has a relatively low gdp per capita very poor development and so on and so to try and enrich itself lots of Euro- ukrainians wanted to join the european union however the russian speakers in the east felt that their future should lay with the russians and not the europeans At the same time lots of Russians were concerned that they wanted to maintain their sphere of influence among all their neighbor states. They were very nervous that Ukraine could join the European Union and more importantly NATO. Now NATO is a organization which of uh, was made during the Cold War to counter Soviet Union aggression uh, led by the United States. The fear the, the Russians had was that there would be Russian American troops or NATO troops on the Ukrainian border. This was very problematic because Russia had military deployments in Ukraine. And so in 2014 there was a revolution to oust the president of Ukraine by forces who are pro-European. Um and they tried to and oft and, and in response to that the Russians took over parts of Ukraine where they had their military deployments, a part of Ukraine called the Crimea. Uh and since then, uh Russian-backed rebels in the east who have been rallying the Russian language speakers have basically been uh fighting the Ukrainians on the ground. 
Now, more recently, the, you, uh, for reasons that are unclear, because there was no clear provocation for this, the Russians amassed a huge force, accused Ukraine of committing genocide, and attempted in, in, and since invaded Ukraine on the grounds that they're committing genocide against Russian speakers, that Ukraine is a Nazi country, which is quite false, to be honest with you, and that they want to basically um, take over the area so the Russian speakers can uh, have their self-determination and so that the Ukrainians can govern themselves. Um, of course, the logic of the final thing is a bit nonsensical, but it is what it is. Yes, the logic does sound a little flawed. But according to you, who really is the aggressor in the war? It is clear that it is Russia, but is the West at fault in any way? Yes, that's a very good question. It's also an academic question that lots of professors have been debating since the Ukrainian revolution in 2014. Um, to be clear, the West is not innocent in this um, necessarily. Russia is certainly the one that's sending in the forces, but the West hasn't been treating Ukraine properly. Um, the problem is that the West, it, there's a belief that the West has been trying to expand too much and it's trying to expand into Russia's borders and threaten Russia's national security. So I think there is very much an argument that there is a national security argument for Russia. The concern was that NATO would get involved in Ukraine. Now, this is relevant because remember I mentioned the Russians have some troops in Ukraine as part of an agreement between the two countries. These troops were stationed in Crimea, the Crimean Peninsula. The fear was that if Russia, if, the, if NATO took over, if, if Ukraine joined NATO, that the Russian troops in Ukraine would be threatened or would be forced out. Now, that's something Russia couldn't stand by. So I think there is a point to be made that the West is responsible to some extent. Yes, I believe that it is important that we acknowledge the fact that there are other forces and countries that need to be held accountable for the ongoing crisis. But with that said, I know that you've been following the war closely. So what do you think would be the consequences of Russia's action in terms of its impact on the global community? Well, um, first of all, we have to be careful not to exaggerate this too much because um, it's important to know that this is a there, is a there is a very lengthy history behind this, and it certainly is a European conflict for now. Um, in terms of its impact on the world community, the, the, okay. first, the most immediate impact is that it will probably be very problematic for the European Union, which looks very divided at this point. They're very divided on sanctions because lots of EU countries, particularly the most strong EU country, Germany, they, it, it is heavily reliant on Russian oil supplies and gas supplies and, and electricity supplies as well. Um, so as a result, the EU is very divided and unless they really do take some leadership and are willing to take some pain in exchange for helping the Ukrainians, it will probably very significantly undermine the European Union. It also basically means that the sort of post-World War II order in, in, in um, Europe has ended. Um, because there's never been a case where a country has invaded another country for the purpose of territorial acquisition in big countries. There have been cases in smaller countries in the south, of, in the southeast of Europe, but those are much smaller countries and were largely on ethnic lines, um, in which, in a way that that is quite different to what's happening in Ukraine. Um, so okay. it does mark a very serious end to that order. And another third consequence, which has been speculated, is China could be looking very closely at what's going on in Ukraine for its plans on Taiwan. Now, of course, I don't think they will invade Taiwan soon because Taiwan is much more difficult to invade than Ukraine for a number of reasons. But it could have implications there as well. That's a very interesting point, Priyankar. As far as I remember, Taiwan is currently the hub of the semiconductor industry. Given the strategic and economic importance of this country, uh, do you believe that the consequences of the war might have implications beyond the borders of Ukraine and Russia? 
yeah, I think that's a good. I think that's a good point. Taiwan is a very big semiconductor country, and that's why the U.S. has. It's one of the many reasons the U.S. has a lot of interest there. Another thing is because Taiwan is very strategically positioned um, in the South China Sea and the East China Sea. In terms of countries beyond Russia, uh, for Taiwan, they firstly to, just to report, Taiwan has put in place sanctions banning the sale of semiconductors to Russia. Um, which is a problem right. for Russia, but to a very limited extent. But in terms of its impact um, on other countries, Taiwan, um, I think if China clearly sees that the West is taking very significant action against Russia, they may be more concerned about direct effects to invade Taiwan. But I don't think that it necessarily is going to mean China will invade Taiwan because um, it's it's simply much more difficult to do so. And I think the U.S. and the West would be far more aggressive. One thing is for certain, that is that if Ukraine does fall, America is probably going to be much more concerned about its interests elsewhere and may well start militarizing those areas much more heavily. And this may mean much more much greater support for Taiwan against China. Well, Priyankar, I really hope that both Russia and Ukraine can find some common ground and avoid any further damage that might lead to catastrophic consequences. But currently, diplomacy is clearly not working. Therefore, countries have started to put forth sanctions against Russia. Are sanctions really helpful or is the global community just fearing the consequences and the ramifications that they may have to face if they do actively get involved in the war? Uh, yeah. Um, on the point on diplomacy, um, first of all, I think it's very difficult because Russia is a very big great power and great powers don't usually do diplomacy when they want to engage in war. And I think it's clear that Russia wants war. In terms of sanctions, I think the reality is there, there are two things to note. The first is U.S. sanctions. The second is EU sanctions. U.S. sanctions wise, um, the, US, Russia, the U.S. has had sanctions on Russia for a very long time on stuff like uh, the humanitarian situation in Russia, the fact that lots of dissidents against Putin have been killed in, in, in very weird ways, and so on. Um, the U.S. sanctions on Russia are not going to be that effective because after the sanctions that happened in 2012, 2013, and 2014, the, for humanitarian reasons and also because of Crimea, uh, basically the Russians have um, pulled their money from America, in effect, weakened their presence in America so that they're not going to be that exposed to the sanctions. So even if the Americans put in place very crippling sanctions on Russia, very huge sanctions on Russia, they're not going to be that effective. Now, for the European Union, the sanctions are the sanctions policy is very, very vague because um, they are targeting a group of people called oligarchs. These are big businessmen who basically help Putin launder money. But there's okay. a problem, which is that the big sanctions on oil and gas and on the banking system, as well as on luxury product sales, are being sanctioned, are, are, are being blocked, rather. They're being blocked by Italy and Germany because they're concerned about how much it will help affect their economies. In reality, I think that there are two problems. The first is we're still in winter. They need the oil and gas supplies and it'll be too much of an immediate hit and the countries didn't prepare for it. And the second issue is there's su there's such a lack of unity right now in the world community as to what to do about it that I think uh, sanctions, it, it, it's not going to be that effective. And also, let's face it, the sanctions are only being implemented after the invasion. If the sanctions right. were, to be, were to have been affected, they should have happened before the invasion. Yes, as far as I remember, United States did have intel in terms of knowing that uh, such an event might be happening in the coming future. But the the real question is, why did they not do anything about it? Well, it's simply put because they didn't believe it would happen. I think it's that's a very okay. simple explanation. Because, first of all, American intelligence, uh, because of the failure in Afghanistan, which was also seen as an intelligence failure, 
um, because the Americans said Kabul would not fall, and then they said Kabul will fall in 90 days, and then within a few few days, it changed to 72 hours. If you remember how chaotic it was, so there's yeah, some question over whether chaotic. U.S. intelligence trusted, yeah. And then as, and also because the Iraq war and everything has left people with a very bitter um, memory of how American intelligence may have failed or may have been uh, made up, according to some of America's biggest critics. Um, however, it turns out, sadly, that the American intelligence was very accurate this time. Now, um, the, I don't think the Germans in particular thought it was going to happen. And if you remember, the French president, Emmanuel Macron, has been um, really, really trying diplomacy. He tried diplomacy to Russia really to the very last end. And I think that reflected the fact that he felt that Russia may not invade Ukraine or may not do all of this. I think the sad truth is that the countries did not think it would happen. And as a result of this, they didn't even bother planning for the possibility because they thought it was a 100% chance never going to happen. Because they did not plan in advance, they did not know what to do when it happened. And that's why we're seeing the European states and the United States caught really in a limbo. That's really interesting, Priyankar. And what's even more interesting is how things can turn so quickly in such a short period of time. But with that said, what would Russia's victory over Ukraine really look like? And what does the future hold for other bordering regions and beyond? Yeah, well, it's important to keep in mind that the other border countries, uh, there, are, there are basically a couple of border countries with Ukraine. Um, Belarus in the north of Ukraine is already a Russian client state. The Russians have troops there. The Ukrainian president is a supporter of Russia. The, the Belarusian, sorry. The Belarus, Belarus's president, Lukashenko, is a supporter of Russia and so on. So those. So I think that's um, that country is gone. Um, the, the problem is the other countries which border Russia and border Ukraine, if Ukraine falls, which looks very likely, almost all of them are members of NATO. And I don't think Russia is going to try and risk World War III just yet in order to attack those countries. The reason is because, um, for all talk about this, I think, first of all, countries like Poland are also members of the European Union. I think the EU simply can't take up, they can't, they won't accept the complete breakup of the European continent into Russia and the European Union because they, I think there are certain limits and I think that that would be a threshold they won't go past. Um, one country which is in a confusing situation is a country called Moldova. It's a very poor country. It's a very small country. They have a small Russian insurgency there as well in a place called Transnistria and they have lots of refugees. Now, that's, that's another thing. That country could be destabilized and we could see a very large number of refugees going in. I mean, some people have said between five and eight million refugees could leave Ukraine if, it's a, if it becomes, if, if we're going down the path we're going down right now. Already, we're being told by the UNHCR that 100,000 Ukrainians have been displaced. And keep in mind, it's just the first two days of the conflict. Lots of people have been fleeing to Romania, to Hungary, to Moldova rather, to Hungary and to Poland, where so far they're welcoming them in Poland. In Poland, in Hungary, they're not having much tolerance for the refugees. In Moldova, they've been setting up refugee camps. We could see a very big European refugee crisis, I think. We've seen refugee crisis before and it is extremely harsh. It is really unfortunate that so many people would have to leave their homes and their country and cross borders into regions that they have very little or no knowledge about. Anyways, I would just like you to know that a lot of our listeners are from India. Therefore, could you give us a brief overview in terms of how the ongoing war can have an impact on the Indian economy and the subcontinent in general? 
Well, there's one effect that everyone will face. I'll talk about India specifically in later, which is that this conflict is probably going to result in very high oil prices. Now, the immediate impact is not going to be felt right now, but because oil prices have skyrocketed since the tensions began, we can expect that things are going to become very expensive, especially gas, oil. So don't be surprised if in the petrol station you're paying, lot, paying a lot more in India, which is, of course, a terrible thing to happen. Electricity could also become more expensive Um now, in so in terms of India specifically, India is in a very difficult position. There are lots of Indian students in Ukraine, some of whom have not left yet, which is very concerning for the Indian government. Um, India and Ukraine have historically had very close ties, but India and Russia also have very close ties because India has bought lots of military equipment from Russia. As a result, India finds itself in a diplomatic jam. Um, this probably means that diplomatically, there's going to be quite a lot of pressure on India from the Americans and from the Europeans to pressure Russia and lots of pressure from Russia on the Indian government to do nothing. And lots of, and India is also going to be concerned because if Russia is cut off from certain banking systems, then it could be very difficult to pay Russians for goods that Indians buy from Russia. That means that the Indians are probably going, the Indian government is probably going to have to try and find alternative methods. Um, so I think the, it, it actually leaves India in a somewhat very difficult position because we are really stuck in the middle of all of this. Um, uh, so it's it's very, very sad, but it's also just the truth. Um, to be clear, the United Nations, India has been somewhat weak in the United Nations, according to the Americans. Um, they, India and China together have shared one position, which is they together have um, basically called on both sides to stop aggression, and they have sort of they have ne they have not condemned Russia at all. They've been very careful not to say anything negative about Russia. And I think the reason right. is simple. It's because India really can't afford to do so at this point. And it's, I think it's an understandable position, but it's difficult. I believe that we have gotten a broad and a holistic overview of the current situation um, uh, in Ukraine and Russia. I would just like to thank you, Priyankar, for coming onto the show. It was great talking to you. Thank you for having me.